The Rebrand Podcast is a proud member of the I Hear Everything Podcast Network. Looking to launch or scale your podcast? I Hear Everything delivers podcast production, growth, and monetization solutions that transform your words into profit. Ready to give your brand a voice? Then visit IHearEverything.com. Welcome to the Rebrand Podcast, a member of the I Hear Everything Podcast Network. This podcast tells the stories of world-changing marketing campaigns as told by the people who build them. Ready to hear untold stories behind the brands you love? Then sit back, relax, and get ready for the Rebrand. Here's the host of the Rebrand Podcast, the CEO of the Harkey Group, Scott Harkey. All right. Welcome to the Rebrand Podcast, where, as you know, we tell untold stories of world-changing brand campaigns as told by the marketers who built them. I'm your host and founder of the Harkey Group, Scott Harkey, and today we're going to hear about navigating challenges in the active lifestyle brand industry. All things active lifestyle brand industry uh, we're going to talk about today and tomorrow. Joining us is Paulo Ribeiro, who is the founder of Two Things, which is a brand transformation agency that focuses on active lifestyle sector. Two Things serves clients such as the North Face, Timberland, Visit Sun Valley, Mad Hippie, Converse, and Arteryx. Some of my favorite brands, so I, I'm super excited to have Paulo on today and talk all things lifestyle brands. What sort of challenges are in the active lifestyle brand industry? All right, here's my conversation with Paulo Ribeiro, the founder of Two Things. What's going on, brother? Hey, man. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Man, some really cool brands. I'm a huge outdoor person, so, you know, the North Face and some of these brands, Converse, like just iconic brands. But, you know, we look at today and the future of brand marketing. What is the thing that, that people are going to struggle with? Right now, yeah. I have a bunch of different answers for that. But I think the simplest one would be so many brands in so many industries follow herd mentality. There certain to be, start to be certain strategies that are accepted within that category, and they just stick to them. And it's kind of funny because rule number one of marketing is how do I stand out, positively differentiate? There's ways to negatively differentiate, of course, but I'd say the biggest struggle, and especially with active lifestyle brands, is they tend to start doing a lot of the same things their competitors do, whether it's in terms of their media mix or how they approach retail or the kinds of products they sell or even the corporate social responsibility play it starts to all look the same. Mm -hmm. So I'd say the challenge is how do you stand out in a way that is right for you? I mean, I think a lot of brands, not just active lifestyle brands, you know, sea of sameness for sure creatively. And then to your point too, like tactically everyone, email marketing or it's everyone's on Amazon now or everything is, you know, D to C or everything's social or everything's activation. And I, I agree with you. From a consumer standpoint, are they seeing it too? Or like, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Converse. I'm a big fan of Vans. And, you know, are they all in the mall and they're all doing the email blasts and they're all social ads and they're all doing what they used to do with like Vans Warp Tour? Like, how do you stick out without getting fired as a CMO by doing something that doesn't work though? Like, how do you balance innovating, but also there's some tried and true things that certainly work industry by industry? Mm-hmm. Let me go down history, like go down sort of a history lane first and then kind of come back to today. You know, in the marketing and advertising and innovation spheres, there starts to be certain, there's brands in every category that everyone looks to as gospel. 
if you're thinking about like consumer tech, particularly, you know, PCs and mobile, Apple and sort of what they've done for a brand. I, so I've spent a lot of time, almost half of my career working with Nike, which in the footwear and athletic industry, I ran brand strategy for Nike globally at Widen, and that is the playbook. You'd say Patagonia and North Face in the outdoor category. And so the thing that happens in a lot of categories is, okay, there's one top of the pyramid brand. Everyone looks at sort of, okay, what's their playbook? And everyone starts doing the same thing eventually. And the leaders, the ones that stay leaders over time, is they keep reinventing that playbook. To think about Nike, in the beginning, it was brand advertising as a way to sort of create brand love. And the reality is Adidas, Puma, Nike, most of those shoes are all made in the same factories. But Nike commands like two to three times the revenue. Why? It was first brand love. Then it was innovation in product to technical performance. More recently, it's become limited edition shoe drops and all of these like individual apps that sort of get stuff out there. But eventually, Adidas starts doing the same thing and limited edition drops like Reebok's got a lot of energy about a bunch of new ones themselves. So I think the history lesson there is really important. If you want to stay on top, you have to actually keep changing the game. And I think that is a challenge for every industry. And I think the bigger you get, the harder it gets. But your question was, how do you stand out without getting in trouble? So I'll answer that question, which is your innovation needs to be appropriate for your brand. It can't just be grasping like the next new technology. You can't overreach basically. Right. But if you don't do it, you're screwed. Right. So like today in the news is how VF, like a sometimes client of mine, is struggling because Vans stopped innovating and they had been getting most of their profit margin from Vans. And they were just, Vans and Converse are kind of like competitors sort of inside the sneaker and they basically make the same product. It's canvas and rubber built super simply, but they had really strong brands and VF was just milking that and riding the wave without really changing the game. And now it's come back to roost and it's hurt though. Now you could say that effect was 10 years later, but I'd answer your question by, Hey, your innovation needs to be appropriate for your brand and makes sense for your customer base. But if you don't do it, watch out. And I think Nike's actually for the first time in a long time at risk of that. I, there hasn't been a lot of really compelling news coming out of Nike recently. Like Jordan brand has really been kind of the lead in innovation, especially in the shoe category right now. Yeah. And yeah, Nike kind of seems to be doing kind of the same. I think they certainly did a lot of things with their app and their customization kind of before anybody else. But yeah, I, I would agree with you. That's interesting to bring up VF. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Vans, obviously, and, and the holding company for, for VF, I think out of Denver. What other brands are in VF? I'm, I'm trying to think. Timberland, but, North Face. Yep. There's a big backpacks business that they started to sell, a few of those in the past year. North Face is like, I don't know, 40, 50% of the revenue. And then there's a long tail of a whole bunch of other brands. They bought Supreme a few years ago. Yep. Yep. Um, I think that's a pretty poor fit for them, but that's just opinion. What, what should Vans be doing? I, I have, you know, a total man crush on Wyden, so I'd love to hear more of your work at Wyden, too. And sure. sometimes I get into the background early. Sometimes I just, you know, want to get right into the topic because it's I think it's super interesting. But what do you think Vans should be doing? I think this leadership team that is in there is actually looking back to the heritage. They had this interesting insight I just read about. I'm not current. I should, disclaimer, I am not working with Vans right now. So, yeah, yeah, no, um, for sure. No, good disclaimer. This is me just, you know, yeah, following the industry and looking at it with a somewhat educated eye. 
they're look, going back to the history and they had this interesting insight, which was they stopped losing the youth market when they stopped sponsoring the Warp Tour. That's what I think of vans, like off the wall and, and Warp Tour, like 100%. They stopped sponsoring it. And since you brought it out, so I spent a lot of time working with Nike at an era where there was the boundary between the Nike marketing department and the Widen team was like very porous. It's hard to tell where one started and the other ended. What year was that? Could you maybe like help me set the stage for your Widen? I did two tours. Two tours. Your two tours of Widen. So around 2005 to 2010. Okay. And I led brand strategy for Electronic Arts globally and then the Nike brand globally. And before then, I was an account person for just a couple of years. But that was tour one. And at that point, the challenges were, there were a couple of different challenges. One, Under Armour came onto the scene and really caught all of us a little flat-footed because they came highly specialized in one product, which was breathable stuff that was super form-fitting, but they went right at the hard contact sports. And a strength for Nike was always alpha male kind of in sports. And then they had the opposite challenge, which was they hadn't done a great job connecting with the female consumer and sort of other types of sports that weren't just aggro. And those two things are almost like two tides going in opposite directions. And how to navigate that was super interesting. And we could spend hours on that. But that was tour one. And then tour two is I was asked to come back. So I, I'd left. I went to run Red Scout, which was an innovation consultancy in San Francisco. I was managing director of West, which was a venture studio started by Jack Dorsey. And that was all about being the marketing department for a whole bunch of high growth startups. Oh, wow. How was that? How was working with Twitter founder Jack Dorsey? He's very thoughtful guy. And actually the entire leadership team of his two companies, Square and Twitter, were some of the best in the business. That was my business school. We were stretched super thin. We launched companies like Venmo and Braintree and Jawbone and of course Square wow. and Twitter. And our job was to kind of make ourselves obsolete, set the strategy, build the team, and then kind of get out. We had an equity stake in each of those companies. But that was all sort of preamble to answer your question. Getting back to tour two was the partners at Widen asked me to come back and build uh, a tech innovation focused agency inside the network. So that was 2014, 2015 to 2018 or so. We built what became Widen and Kennedy Lodge, which was a different offering inside the Widen network. But one of our key clients, in fact, you know, the relationship with Nike and Widen so tight that it was some years almost half of the work we were doing was working directly with Nike's innovation wow. kitchen on future retail, metaverse strategies, AR stuff, things like that. We built Nike Live Design and a lot of the different stuff, but all of it working with emerging technology. What do you think makes Widen so great of being one of the greatest independent agencies out there, other than being such a big part of Nike, obviously, and I think culturally relevancy, they they nail, you know, just so many things that they continue to hit out of the park creatively. But sometimes people say some other you know, creatives at Widen Tour can be <laughs> a little stubborn and hard to work with. But man, they, their their work is just incredible. But what, I mean, and they're independent. I mean, what what do you? And they're in a they're in like a sleeper market. What, what do you think makes them so great as an agency? I could spend hours on that as well. But um, <laughs> I know I'm... I would I, fundamentally I would say team more than anything else. I'd say team. Like one of the things that I have learned about creativity some by doing and some by having phenomenal mentors like that, you know, the leadership at Widen, is creativity is about sort of combining two things in an unexpected way, right? And so you need contrasts of people. You need people with different skill sets, and you definitely need a large team. They're, the myth of the individual creator is generally a myth. And I guess the best piece of evidence that I could well, give you about Widen is this. If Dan Widen's legacy was just writing Just Do It, 
it would be a footnote in advertising. What he did is create an environment for so many other people to thrive. And in doing so, his legacy is bigger because of that. He, rest in peace. He and Dave passed just a couple of years ago. And that is so critical to understand. And I think everyone who's got a big ego around sort of their individual contribution, take a look at the stuff that is put out. And it is almost always a huge team of different kinds of skill sets coming together. And Dan created that environment, which meant the bench was super deep internally inside that building. It's one of the most competitive environments so that, you know, in the Portland office, it's built like an Escher drawing. There's this huge cavern in the middle and all these kind of gangways going across. So if you were part of leadership at Wyden in any era, you were very used to going into the boards of Fortune 100 companies and giving straight, no bullshit opinions about what they're doing wrong and what they're doing right. And you get very comfortable presenting to CEOs and boards, et cetera. The most intimidating place to present to was always inside that cavern to the rest of the company. Oh. And so you, we battled, we disagreed. There, of course, there were politics, but at the end of the day, the focus was on quality of the work. And so I think that creatives having big egos or strategists having big egos or whatever, it's, it was never about the individuals and Dan mm -hmm. created that environment. And anyone who's running a creative organization or a marketing organization that is really good, that is being honest, would say it's team. That's what makes excellent work. There's so many nuggets of what you said. I'm glad I veered off topic here a little bit and wanted to ask you some questions about Wyden because, and especially how you said it, it the legacy was just about, you know, just do it. It'd be it, great. Cool. You came up with, a, you know, one of the most iconic taglines ever, but it's so much bigger than that. And what I really took to heart, and I, I, I want to send this to a lot of creatives I've worked with over the years who I love, our owned agencies at the Hargit Group, but just the discomfort and the clash of ideas and the different backgrounds and the diversity of a team is what makes great creative. And anyone that thinks that they can do it just as an individual is so wrong. And that's what makes Wyden kind of what I took is why Wyden's so great. And I, you didn't say this, but I've heard this from others. Like, I don't know if you know Brent Hodges, who runs Mira and the kind of the new business group. I know of him. We don't know each other well. Yeah. He, he's fantastic. I, I've learned a lot from him over the years. Anyone who wants to learn about agency new business, he, he's a guy you should definitely look up. Brent Hodges at Mirren. And he talked a lot about like they would come into boardrooms as widen and they would basically facilitate a no bullshit kind of conversation. And when other agencies were pitching, they were arguing and facilitating heavy debate with clients about the brand, which led to questions, which led to great creative. And just that clash of people and cultures and ideas, I think what I'm hearing from you too, is really one of the keys to the great creative they put out. Yeah, no doubt. And an environment that Dan created intentionally and David, who, but he was in much more sort of a kind of backseat, kind of lead by lead through quiet kind of person. Dan was not. He cultivated that environment. And it's so much different, Dan Wyden, than like a Jay Shiat. Like Jay Shiat seemed to be more of like a businessman of like acquiring agencies, kind of invented the holding company kind of network. And I know a lot of people worked for him. I can't talk about Jay. He was that, but. I can't speak to that. I just, I was privileged to be an apprentice of Dan's for, you know, 10 years of my career. And thank God for it. Well, sorry to veer off there a little bit, but I think, I think it's important to really hear kind of the background and your philosophy of brand marketing. Obviously, you know, Dan having such a big effect and, and widened for sure. Getting back maybe the topic. And I, I love what you said about Vans, getting back to the 
history of the brand and where they connected with people and what a great place like Warp Tour with music. I think that is a great take. Maybe other lifestyle brands, you know, maybe generalizing the question again, how else are they struggling? I, I think I heard a little bit from you, sea of sameness and, you know, somebody as an innovator in a category does really well. And then there's the copycats. And then that's the next time to be the innovator. But be careful how you get screwed up is maybe not innovating too much, but pushing beyond the credibility of where your brand is, maybe reaching uh, a little bit. But where else are you seeing in, in lifestyle space that, in your opinion, and based on your experience, you know, where are people failing? Where are people succeeding? What's the playbook for success? This might be a little connected to how you stand out, but there's so much emphasis these days, and this has been, I'd say, an accelerating trend over the last 10 years because AI is really pushing this dynamic even more around efficiency and precision targeting. And while these things are important, it's less and less frequent that a brand takes a big swing and commits to it and sticks with it, right? And I'll give you an example. So I was privileged to be part of the team when I was running Red Scout that helped turn around Gatorade's business after its first ever decline. And the strategy there was actually to innovate from the core. This is a hydration company, but we reimagined what that positioning was around fueling sport performance. And that gave us permission to go into food, launching hey. the G-Series, and then also digital products around sport nutrition. These were big swings, hundreds of millions of dollars in investments that yielded billions in dollars in revenue in just a few short years and turned around that brand and got it back on track. Now, that's not like a little efficiency play in advertising, right? Yeah. And I think this is where the big opportunity is. I'll, I'll tell you personally, I think the lowest hanging fruit for active lifestyle brand that, that set brands that sell physical products is how do they use their retail footprints? And you can make big investments there over time that change how brands are experienced. So I don't know how many years ago it was, 15, 20? 25 that REI put a climbing wall inside of its store. You know, people point to Patagonia, and rightly so, for the way worn wear and how, uh, you know, I've got a bunch of Patagonia jackets and vests that like have that badge of pride with like 15, 20 different patches on them that they, they go and make themselves. They change how you use retail, not just to sell products. And I just see so few other brands like really playing in that space and, and actually doing it in a meaningful way. You have this toehold. Five years ago, we saw this moment before COVID of people starting to like invest a lot in experiential and entertainment in stores. Nike towns were doing a lot of great work there and some of their sort of smaller footprint sort of specialty stores as well. And then COVID came and we retracted from retail. Everything was direct to consumer and online. But now here we are on the other side of it, and most brands own a lot of real estate. Most brands are still doing it to hang clothes. Mm -hmm. um, how do you engage your consumers in those spaces in big ways over time? I see little experiments like Nike is actually finally investing in gyms. You know, they have Nike workout spaces that are branded. It doesn't seem like super, it's like kind of obvious. It, it's not really interesting yet, but it's smart business. But every other brand that is just selling clothes on a rack with like some video screen playing like big mountain images has is leaving so much on the table. 
And so I expect to see that shift. But one of the first things I talk to any of the brands that we work with that has owned retail and direct to consumer is how are you bringing those things together and how are you driving entertainment and membership and how are you using that physical footprint in an interesting way that is appropriate for your brand? Uh, really, really good takes and points. The first around product innovation, which seems probably the most scary, I would say, <laughs> and probably the biggest risk in your Gatorade example, I think is fantastic. So I, I want to come back to product innovation question and the role of CMOs and marketers and agencies for product innovation, because I, I do think it's sort of a scary kind of thing at times. The second, I think when you said lowest hanging fruit, I couldn't agree more. And your examples were great about innovating retail, whether it, whether you are the retailer or you are the brand. I think another good example would be like a Lululemon and what they do with, you know, yoga on site and DJs in store and how they activate. I think they've done a fantastic job with that brand. And I would argue um, did. Did. No, for sure. I mean, Viore certainly come came on the scene and became the cooler version. But like I live in Scottsdale and they, they had like this little fun run. I, I, I don't know. It was like a 10K or something and just how they activated it and how they, I mean, it wasn't a charity. It was like full on just Lululemon. I'm like, what the, this is insane. Yeah. So yeah, I, I agree. I think they could step it up. But my, my, I want to go back because I, I think there's other great examples for maybe brands, even if they don't own as much retail or if they're not as big as like a Nike, you know, maybe some other examples or ideas for retail innovation. And then my other question, getting back to product innovation and how important that is and how you would even think about that. And I think if talking to a lot of CMOs, just the amount of roles they have from customer experience to now product innovation, I think is, is a little scary. So maybe other ideas or how to kind of tackle like a big beast like that. If I can be really direct with you, I'd say it's scary maybe for CMOs that come from a communications only lens as opposed yes, to yeah. folks that sort of have been close to product. I mean, the reality of business is like you have to drive growth and you drive growth not through advertising and communications. You drive growth through how many new ways am I serving the consumer? So, you know what? I'll tell you one of the pitfalls. So one of the conversations we had with Nike C-Suite a lot about five years ago was how their marketing machine was so damn good that they could launch innovations and make it seem like it was a good business just on the strength of their marketing. But in reality, it wasn't necessarily. Things like Fuel Band <laughs> come to mind. Some of their initial forays in the metaverse, although I, I think actually some of the things they're doing now in partnership with EA Sports and Dots Foosh are actually pretty damn good and seem like they've got legs and sustainability over time. But if you approach it product innovation like it's a hype cycle for news for this season, as opposed to actually testing the market on, hey, are these products going to actually have some legs over time? It's not just scary, it's stupid, right? But you were asking for some good examples, like, you know, like the work we did with Gatorade, where you have to push into adjacencies that make sense, right? So from beverages to food, but it was all always around the moment of sport, right? And you're still, it's still stuff you're putting in your mouth to actually have you play better on the field. Who's a brand that does well at that right now? Um, you know, Patagonia said just since it came up, like them pushing into food, it might seem like small business, but it does a lot to drive the brand halo. And it's all around the occasion of exploring the backcountry. Yeti does a great job. They started with coolers. What do you use coolers for? You use them to party out in the backcountry. You throw fish in it on your boat. Okay, now what are these other occasions? Hiking, hunting etc. They do a great job sort of just expanding from like a core truth 
like thermal insulation that's like super rugged. Now, everything from like coffee cups to like, you know, fishing gear, right? It actually makes sense. But I don't think they didn't go after each of those businesses like here's our next $50 million play, right? They started small. They sold a little direct to consumer. They tested the market and see how it would work out. Super smart. That makes total sense. I like the adjacency and it being around sort of a brand truth or an area that they own from a, not just a product, but just kind of like a, an area. Like I think your examples were fantastic. What, what's sort of the timing on the test and rollout? Like, is this, are you thinking about two years from now on the product innovation and, and you're testing does timing come up on, on the product innovation at all, like a, a cycle of time of when you, you start to think about the adjacents that you could compete in? I've got a few gray hairs, so I can tell you, like, that timing thing used to be a much bigger factor even 10 years ago, seven years ago and before than it is today. The reason is sort of factories. That we, you can manufacture product all over the world now. You can manufacture product in much smaller runs, so your investment is less. So there's that. The mechanisms to go direct to consumer are so turnkey and easy now. Like even seven years ago, if you wanted to go direct to consumer on a new product line, you might have to do a whole custom e-commerce build. Like that, those days are behind us, right? It's like you turn on a site, e-commerce's functionality is already baked in. So my short answer is no, but the scale is going to depend on sort of, of the business. You know, Nike, $50 billion market cap, maybe more now. You know, a small test for them is not the same as a small test for Yeti, for example. And so that scale is going to just vary depending on each brand. But I'd say across the board, no, you're not, you don't need two years to get results on, is there an appetite for this thing? I think the most complex products, you're probably looking at six to nine months. Okay. I mean, there's no excuse anymore to your point on, on the product innovation side and, and testing and, and finding ways in which, you know, you can extend offerings to, to customers. I mean, there's just not an excuse to, to make that happen. Yeah. And I think, and I don't know if, that if you were driving at this or not, but I will say like one of the beauties of marketing is it can mean different things to different brands. It also means that people find their way to that work from a bunch of different paths. Some people mm-hmm. from PR, some from advertising, some more from product creation or innovation or strategy roles or what have you. And so there's a lot of different flavors. Tech companies have sort of very performance and engineering driven cultures often, but not always, you know, life, active lifestyle brands for the, from a product culture have a very different like brand and core consumer lens often, mm-hmm. but not always. And so I guess what I would say is like the true definition of marketing is, you know, to define needs and serve them, right? It's not to go tell stories. To define needs and serve them. Yeah. And have a bunch of squishy metrics, right? I think this is a thing that like folks that have only gotten exposure to PR and advertising think, you know, the KPIs are opinions and reach, you know, when really the metric in business is always growth and accretive lines of business and expansion and driving up margin and loyalty and reducing churn, you know? And so, yeah, if it's scary, it's maybe because there is a disconnect between sort of the business goals of a company and that marketing department, or the mm-hmm. team isn't trained enough on really what the bottom line is. I, I love that. And I, I do think, you know, the bigger brands, I think the CMOs have more permission and are way more involved in all aspects of the brand, including product development and maybe smaller Sometimes. companies. True. And depending on the depending on the business segment, for sure. 
large companies can can have the downside of like the the roles are like too bifurcated into like yeah. too many like discrete disciplines as opposed to sort of like crossing related disciplines. So it, it yeah, I don't know that there's a simple rule of thumb there, but I will say that more than other kind of major departments that you find at most companies, you can find marketing teams that are a little disconnected from the business goals. A good Correct. signal for me, by the way, is when you see marketing people that have titles like chief revenue officer, where, where their discipline is tied to revenue. Correct. It's usually a pretty good signal. If the CMO is chief marketing officer and chief innovation officer or chief product officer and chief marketing officer or something like that, chief brand and product, like those are good signals. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And you've seen it. I think to your point too, like sometimes I'll go to A&A and you know, the CMO is doing their thing and they're showing their, and, and you can see how much they've been involved in product. And in other cases, it's all communication. It's all, you know, brand. And I think, you know, small companies, I, more often than not, you know, and I'm not talking like super small companies, just not Fortune 500 companies, I'd say less involved in, at least from what I've seen, maybe in the active lifestyle, you've seen different than in, in the product. And sometimes product gets, you know, pushed down to them. And then they're like, all right, now I got to market it <laughs> rather than letting, marketing and consumer demand and that helps feed product innovation. I don't know. I'm kind of going yeah, down yeah. a little. There, there are downsides to being on the agency side, but one of the positives is we get a front row seat to the way like each different organization operates. And it's fascinating, man. There are so many, you do see patterns, but there are so many different ways to set this up. And it's, it's always, you always learn something, good or bad. I, and I, that's why I do like the agency side because I, I think if I were like a CMO and I, I think I would just get so bogged down with the politics and get so buried in the weeds of all the internal stuff, which I think there's so many great CMOs that I know and, you know, really good marketing people that can deal with that. that, that I could not. So I, yeah, I agree with you. And whether it's a Fortune 500, which I've worked with, or Fortune 100, which we've worked with, and or $100 million company, there's always politics and weird stuff at play. And and, and as an agency, you can kind of sit back and, and play more of a hopefully better representing the consumer and showing them where, where growth is. But here's the deal. I, I'm way over, but I don't care. This is a, a hell of a conversation. And, and we're going to bring you right back. So we're going to wrap it up right there, Rebrand Podcast. We're going to bring Paula right back, founder of Two Things. And that's all spelled out. Big thanks to Paula for joining us. Again, his agency is Two Things. But part two of this interview, which we'll publish tomorrow, Paula and I are going to discuss reimagining go-to-market for lifestyle brands. So this is all things lifestyle brands. This has been a fantastic conversation. If you want to learn more about Paula, you can find a link in his LinkedIn profile in our show notes, or you can visit his company website at twothings.co. Another link I want to tell you about, if you didn't have a chance to take notes, as you know, everything's at rebrandpod.com, or you can find me on social media. It's just at Scott Harkey, and I'm pretty much anywhere you'd want to be. So LinkedIn, probably the best given that we're all business people here, but uh, you can find me on Instagram and TikTok and all the other stuff. So thanks for all the support. Love this marketing audience, having a blast doing this. Thanks for just great guests coming on and just having you know, like real marketing, fun conversations. So remember, we try to publish every day during the work week. The last couple months, thanks for bearing with me. Probably been a little more spotty given the holidays, but again, thanks for the support. That's it for today. Remember, it's never too late to rebuild, reboot, or rebrand. 